Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast for episode 57 with Alan Aragon. I am so excited to bring you guys this podcast today because Alan is an absolute legend in the field of nutrition science and he shares his wealth of knowledge with you guys today. So I hope you guys are excited as I am for today's podcast. Now, just in case you guys haven't heard of Alan Aragon, he is a nutrition researcher and educator with over 20 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based information. Alan writes a monthly research review on his website, which provides cutting-edge theoretical and practical information, and his work has been published in popular magazines as well as peer-reviewed scientific literature. He co-authored Nutrient Timing Revisited, the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He's also the lead author of the ISSN Position Stand on Diets and Body Composition. Alan maintains a private practice designing programs for recreational, Olympic, professional athletes, and of course, regular people striving to be their best. You can find Alan on his website, which is alanaragon.com, or his Instagram, which is at thealanaragon. Now we've split the podcast into two episodes as there is so much valuable content here and it's basically two huge nutrition myth-busting podcasts based on the latest research and science. So in today's podcast, we start by discussing why nutrition in general is so utterly confusing and why there are so many conflicting opinions. We then look at the blue zones and why no diet is better than any other diet. We debunk some breakfast myths. We talk about nutrient timing, damaged metabolisms, weight loss plateaus, and also fasting. Now, if you enjoy this podcast today, I'd really encourage you to purchase my top-rated webinar on evidence-based fat loss. It's available on my website for only $29 Australian dollars. And what Alan and I discuss in this podcast is really just brushing the surface on the reasons you may not be able to lose weight or keep it off. In the webinar, which is available on my website, I discuss fat loss data and statistics, if you can really damage your metabolism, how to improve your metabolism, energy balance, so energy in and energy out, how to reverse a plateau, body composition goals, body composition analysis, how to calculate your calories and how to calculate your macros, flexible dieting and what you may be doing wrong, diet breaks or reverse dieting, foundations of fat loss science, foundations of a healthy diet, how to build your own fat burning meals, any red flags we consider when it comes to dieting, and finally, my own personal method and a 30-minute Q&A to end out the webinar to answer all my listener questions. You can find this three-hour jam-packed webinar on my website for only 29 AUD. So today, let's jump into the podcast with Alan on nutrition mythbusting. Welcome, Alan Aragon, to today's podcast all about mythbusting. I'm so excited to have you on today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Leanne. Thank you so much for inviting me and dealing with my schedule. So, <laughs> well, we're absolutely honored to have you on. But I'd love for you to start by telling our listeners just a little bit about yourself and what you do yourself. Um, I guess on a day-to-day basis. I'm a nutrition researcher. That's the hat that I've been wearing for the past five-ish years, and the twenty years prior to that, it was kind of a mixture of. Uh, being a um, a trainer in the trenches and um, 
a, a counselor as well on the nutrition side of things. Uh, but right now it's really kind of all about taking everything that I've learned and experienced in the field uh, and teaching other practitioners the science behind it and also collaborating on, on some of the research in the area of uh, nutrition as it relates to fitness and body composition and health and uh, just trying to get the findings out there and really try to get the truth out there, try to raise the collective IQ of the industry, so to speak. <laughs> and the whole social media as well, which is wonderful. Yes, it's a fun challenge, yes. <laughs> now, my first question for Ellen, we're going to go deep straight away, is why is the public so utterly confused about nutrition? Why are we so confused about what to eat? Well, in the beginning, nutrition is complex. It, it's more complex than people give it credit for. And when you combine a complex topic with nutrition, with the reality that everybody eats, then you have this perfect recipe for, for everybody stepping in and giving their opinion. So with a, a field like, for example, engineering or, or law, Mm-hmm. Not everybody lawyers and not everybody engineers, right? Mm-hmm. So not everybody's going to step in and say, oh, well, this is what worked for me and this <laughs> is what will therefore work for everybody. It just doesn't happen in other fields. Whereas with nutrition, everybody eats so everybody thinks yeah. they have an equal say. So that's one of the problems. Yeah. The other problem is uh, this was uh, some recent research that came out. It's by Martin, M-A-R-T-O-N, and colleagues. It just came out. Uh, and it is. It, it looked at what is the proportional breakdown mm-hmm. of the best-selling diet book authors. Like, who are they? What are their professional backgrounds? Mm. What are what What is their uh, education? And thirty-three point seven percent of the top one hundred best-selling diet books are written by physicians. And in contrast to that, only 3.6% of the top 100 best-selling diet books are written by dietitians. And so there's a lot, there's, gosh, there's, there's more than a dozen different types of professions dipping their hands in and writing diet books. And Mm. a lot of them have really zero formal training in the sciences, let alone uh, nutritional science. And so the reason why people are so confused, the reason why the general public is so confused is because number one, it's complex. Number Mm -hmm. two, everybody's pitching in. And number three, the people who are pitching in, uh, who really are qualified to pitch in, are in the scant minority. Mm. So in a nutshell, that's what the issue is. Mm. And I guess the ones that are pitching in who are the loudest, they're often the most least qualified. So that's why they can be the loudest. They can make the most noise because they don't have, you know, these registrational governing bodies to pull them up or to say, hey, you know, you can't go around saying that, that sort of thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. People tend to put physicians up on a pedestal. They they give them, they attribute a godlike status to them. Mm. And... Uh, you know, it kind of is what it is. Physicians are very innately intelligent individuals. Most of my doctor friends are just brilliant people, but um, they also are, they tend to have a, a bigger ego and a, a larger level of confidence to the point that they, they feel like they're an expert on 
everything under the umbrella of health, including nutrition, <laughs> including other subspecialties, you know? So, um, but society just trusts our doctors and, um, dietitians as a group, in my observations, they're too busy working with clients and patients and, and putting their time and effort in the trenches mm. to even bother with writing about it or, um, putting in the effort it takes to become in quotes, a figure in the industry. So maybe that'll change over time. Uh, as we were talking about off the air, I would love to see at some point you write a book and I would be super happy to <laughs> just <laughs> plug that thing through and, uh, get it out there in front of my audience and, and the larger audience. And, and we just need more qualified people to get the good information out there. And it's just not happening right now. That's mm. why everybody's confused. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And even I reach out to so many incredible research-based dietitians who have these wonderful you know, research papers coming through. They're at university, they're doing their PhDs. They're just so fearful. They don't even want to talk about their research online or have me put it to you know, my social media following because of some of that backlash. I think they've seen what happens to people on social media. I mean, I agree, you have to have a really thick skin. But if you spend you know, how many years doing your PhD and find these wonderful results, and then you're too afraid to share it, I think that's where we need a little bit of... Even like confidence training, I think, in a, in a dietetic degree to be able to get some of our research out there and grow that thick skin and, and push through some of that, I guess, pushback that we're obviously going to get through social media. It's quite sad, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it, it's really difficult to figure out why it is that way, but I'm hoping that the tide can gradually change. Mm, over time. Mm, definitely with you. Now, when we think about, um, I guess, the different places around the world, the different um, communities and how they eat, they all eat very different diets. And I'm thinking very much about the blue zones here, which I'm hoping that you, I'm sure that you, you're well aware of the research. Yeah. Um, but why isn't nutrition as simple as saying, you know, everybody must eat a high carb diet or, or fat is bad for everybody, or you must be a plant-based diet. Because when we look at these different communities all around the world, they're all thriving, doing completely different things, aren't they? Yes. Yes, they are. Uh, the, it, it's not the macronutrient breakdown that, that unifies these healthy people. Uh, it's not the specific uh, food choices themselves that unify these healthy people. What, what really tends to unify them is the sheer amount of food they consume and the generally the proportion of how much of that food is whole and minimally refined versus highly refined and ultra processed. So you can take two populations on opposite ends of the earth where uh, one population will eat um, low carb, high fat, let's say, and then the other population will eat a high carb, low fat. Mm -hmm. Well, as long as these two populations are predominating their diets with minimally refined, mostly whole types of foods, uh, and they're not consuming too much of it to the degree that it's impacting body composition um, and uh, other other related parameters to body composition, then guess what? There's a, a wide variety of diet types that the human species can survive and thrive on. And unfortunately, that concept is not very exciting. It's not very sexy. You can't necessarily write a book based on that concept of, wow, there's just such a wide variety of diets people can do wonderful on. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
And that doesn't really capture people's emotions. They want to know <laughs> what is the diet? Yeah. What is the ticket? What is the golden ticket that I need to get in order to live forever and look beautiful? So yes. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I'd even like to take it one step further, that blue zone research. I mean, nutrition is so important, but I love how they talk about like the community aspect of eating. You know, those, those communities around the world where they really thrive is that they sit down and they eat a meal with the family. They're not scrolling through social media as they shovel down their breakfast, are they? I mean, they have some of these communities, particularly in Italy, will have red wine in moderation. So again, you can't just do a blanket statement where alcohol is bad. And if you want to go into a fat loss stage, you've got to drop all alcohol because there are communities absolutely thriving and have some of the best health in the world who regularly do include a glass or two of red wine in a social situation. And I think that's the real kicker there, isn't it? The social aspect. Yes. Community ties, family ties, um, even spiritual health. Mm -hmm. And we we, we saw that with Italy, how they dealt with a a particularly brutal spike in the COVID-19 cases, just because Mm -hmm. of how community-wise, how close they are in, in, uh, the physical senses as well as the metaphysical sense. And so um, it was very difficult for for Italy to um, implement the social distancing guidelines and everything that it required to, in quotes, flatten the curve. So, um, but you make a very good point there. And I do agree. There is a whole lot more that goes into health and longevity than merely the uh, distribution of macronutrients and food sources of the diet. There is a psychosocial element there, a very strong one. Mm. Now, Alan, I'd love to t- totally switch gears with you and start debunking some breakfast myths. So I'm sure that you get asked all of these questions around breakfast all of the time. Should I eat breakfast? Do I need to eat breakfast? Will skipping breakfast help me metabolically? Will skipping breakfast automatically help me lose weight? So I'd love to get your thoughts around the current research because I know that even as a nutritionist and a dietitian growing up, you know, I'm talking six, seven years ago during my schooling, it was it was this automatic, like everybody should eat breakfast. It's the most important rule of the day. But I know that that's very much been debunked in the last couple of years. So I'd love to hear your opinion around some of these breakfast myths that I'm sure you hear over and over again on social media. Yes, definitely. That That's a huge topic right now. And there's a lot of research that's ongoing on, on the breakfast topic. And so, but there has been a lot of research done on the, the claim that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's almost taken as uh, unassailable gospel mm-hmm. that that is the most important meal of the day but there are as always there are some nuances that go missing on that like as a general principle uh breakfast is a good meal to have general principle mm-hmm. but when you examine different populations and different goals then you have to factor those in so uh for example a population adult population who is focused on weight loss. For that population, breakfast is not necessarily the most important meal of the day. Uh, In fact, a recent meta-analysis, and a meta-analysis is uh, what happens when you um, combine all of the data from several, from all the studies that are relevant to a given topic. You pool the data together and you see which direction the weight of the evidence leans, whether it's for or against a given claim. Mm -hmm. So um, in a particular meta-analysis by, it looks like Sievert, S-I-E-V-E-R-T, by uh, Catherine Sievert and colleagues, and uh, they 
this was 2019, they looked at all of the research, all of the human intervention trials on breakfast skipping versus not skipping. And they looked at the influence of breakfast on appetite and energy intake and body weight. And lo and behold, skipping breakfast had a slight advantage in terms of weight loss and in terms of lower calorie intake through the course of the day. And if you're familiar with some basic physiology, this is not very surprising because breakfast skippers, uh, if you skip breakfast, you're eating less. And <laughs> the the prevailing uh, or traditional hypothesis was if you skip breakfast, you're going to be super hungry and then you're going to overcompensate with it the rest of the day and eat more. Well, that sounds plausible. It's that, that's a that's a viable kind of concern on paper, but when they put it through the test in these intervention trials, and then you look at the weight of the evidence, you look at all of the intervention trials examining this, and then you kind of come to a conclusion to see what does the evidence say? Well, the evidence simply does not support this concern that if you skip breakfast, you are going to be shooting yourself in the foot as far as weight gain goes. In fact, it shows that skipping breakfast has a slight advantage. Um, now I want to add a couple of caveats mm-hmm. to these findings. So um, breakfast a- as a group, um, if, if you take breakfast uh, skippers and you um, include them in on a study where you don't del- delineate between habitual breakfast skippers and breakfast eaters, then if that study involves removing breakfast, then the habitual breakfast eaters might experience some problems, whereas habitual breakfast skippers will tend not to. Mm-hmm. So what that tells us is that the human body is not stupid. <laughs> the human body can adapt to whatever eating pattern that you habituate to. And it's not necessarily a matter of breakfast being good or bad per se. It sometimes can be a matter of disrupting your normal eating pattern that can uh, show up as impaired glucose control or dyslipidemia in the short term in, the, in these clinical trials that are uh, getting people all riled up. But um, it's a big topic. I could probably ramble for another uh, 12 minutes in, in, on this topic and then lose people. So let me kind of tie this all back together to my point. If as an adult, you prefer to eat breakfast, and, and that's another wrinkle too. What is breakfast? Anything before 10 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> if it's after 10 a.m., are you now in, br- in you know brunch? <laughs> uh, it, it gets really silly. If you have a preference for consuming breakfast, then keep at it. Great. If you have a preference for skipping breakfast and you're still maintaining good health, good body composition, you're still headed towards your goals, then great. The bottom line is the research evidence as it stands today in adults does not support the age-old lore that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Now, this is different with children and adolescents, Mm -hmm. in which case uh, they can definitely run into some problems with growth and development and cognition, et cetera, uh, if they're skipping breakfast. Mm-hmm. But for adults, it's not the same, not the same scenario. 
Definitely. And I loved how you broke that down, I guess, into the population group that was more focused on weight loss. Because if we were to think about another population group, like a um, some college athletes, for example, skipping breakfast, particularly if you've got a really early morning training session or you're doing a double training session throughout the day, skipping breakfast probably wouldn't be a great thing because some of those college athletes struggle to even eat their requirements at on a good day, let alone if you were then to remove breakfast out of it as well. So I think the population group that we're talking to here is super important to note as well, isn't it? Indeed it is. And that that's why you're a nutrition expert, because you can interject with such useful stuff like that that I could have missed. So thank you for that. Yes, totally agreed. No, not that you could have missed it at all. Just I know that we've got a limited time on this podcast. So I always <laughs> like to interject with little things for the listeners at home, because they're probably sitting there going, Alan told me not to eat breakfast, but they do like a double CrossFit <laughs> session a day or something. So I just Alan like to it, breakfast. <laughs> I like to interject with these little things just to keep your name very, very well held. So I next, appreciate Alan, that. <laughs> I'd love to ask you about nutrient timing because again, super popular on social media. Talk people are talking, people are fighting about whether to front load carbs, whether to back load carbs, how many meals they should eat in a day, nutrient timing. It's all just getting a little bit crazy, particularly on social media. There's a lot of you know trainers and fitness professionals fighting over this and again the the dietitians and registered dietitians have kind of taken a step back and go you know just kind of eat balanced meals so what is the current research around research timing and I'd love to talk about the population group that's more concerned with weight loss and body composition here if you have any research around nutrient timing for them Okay, it's a good thing we're narrowing it down to that population because I was going to ramble <laughs> for about 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, so so that's an important point you bring up. Whenever we ask this question or any question in the nutrition and diet realm, we have to say, what's the population and what's the goal? Mm -hmm. So with the weight loss population, mm -hmm. um, nutrient timing in general doesn't matter beyond what goes on in 24 hours, as long as the individual is able to sustain it. So that's kind of the larger framework with it. Now, within that framework, we can get a little bit more specific and say that it's not realistic for most people to eat less than one to two meals a day if they're trying to lose weight. Mm -hmm. So um, on that lower end, you've got, let's say, one to three meals a day. And then on sort of the higher end of the range in weight loss, you got the three to six meals a day people. Mm -hmm. The research as it stands does not indicate any particular advantage to either bracket. So what that means is we can program based on personal preference uh, and honoring that personal preference of meal distribution through the day will facilitate adherence. So uh, people who claim that you need to eat six meals a day to stoke the metabolism, well, that's just not true because that's been tested directly and explicitly, uh, uh, and there is no metabolic or thermic advantage of a higher versus lower meal frequency. So you won't burn more, more calories in a 24-hour period eating six meals a day versus eating two to three meals a day. If you're talking about... Um, comparing an equated number of calories as well as an equated breakdown of the uh, co construction of those calories macronutritionally. Mm -hmm. So um, this question is, is, is a lot of, it doesn't matter. And it's got a lot <laughs> of, I'm, I'm just saying in different ways, I'm saying 
that doesn't matter. <laughs> so nutrient timing for weight loss doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, if we were to talk about other goals, mm-hmm. then it can matter. Mm-hmm. Then it can matter. But for let's let's say the population trying to diet, I, I would reiterate that if you are more comfortable uh, eating or, or grazing your way through the day where you're having, let's say, three meals and three snacks or six mini meals, and you can sustain that and keep your progress going, that's just as legit as the person next to you who eats two to three times a day. Wonderful. And now I'd love to be a little bit cheeky and ask you a little bit more about if somebody was actively trying to gain weight or gain muscle. I'm imagining when we're talking about nutrient timing, particularly protein, that that it is important, you know, regularly spread throughout the day and that sort of thing. So if we're talking about a population who is actively wanting to put on strength and muscle, does carb timing matter as much or is it really just protein focused throughout the day? Okay, that's that's a very broy question. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so with gaining muscle, there are differences in um, the effects of different protein distributions through the day. Mm-hmm. So um, the the short range goal, the short term goal of of gaining muscle would be to maximize the anabolic response of each meal. So if you're you're really trying to gain muscle at the fastest rate possible, you would want each meal to have the most profound effect possible on net gains in muscle protein or net gains in muscle protein synthesis. So in order to achieve that, we've seen that there is a ceiling of muscle protein synthesis that can be accomplished in a single meal. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to uh, I'll take a round example of uh, a big amount of protein for a big boy. Let's say two two hundred grams of protein. Mm-hmm. In theory, this person will gain muscle at a faster rate if they break their intake down into four fifty gram servings through the course of the day uh, versus two one hundred gram meals in the course of the day, and that's because muscle protein synthesis tends to top out at right around, oh, 0.4 grams per kilo of body weight uh, in terms of protein dosing per meal. That's sort of like the, the max. Um, and, and, you know, you can, you can fudge those numbers a little bit. It can be 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per meal. That is the kind of the anabolic ceiling of protein dosing per meal. So if you can achieve four of those maxing out the anabolic response spikes through the day versus two, mm-hmm. then at least in theory, you're, you're going to gain muscle more quickly mm-hmm. if you uh, have those four meals versus two meals a day. So that's protein. As far as carbohydrate goes, uh, there used to be this concept called the post-exercise anabolic window of opportunity mm-hmm. where you were supposed to get your lightning fast absorbed uh protein and carbs at a very specific ratio, like one to four ratio and all that stuff. And and that stuff did apply to endurance athletes Mm -hmm. who are trying to restock their their glycogen stores as quickly as possible to be able to compete again with the same glycogen depleted muscles in the same day. But this doesn't necessarily apply to our beloved gym bros trying to get their 16-inch biceps going. (laughs) 
So um, <laughs> it, that doesn't necessarily apply to them. And the way that we know that is there's been a series of studies comparing uh, protein only post-exercise with protein plus carbs post-exercise. If you'll bear with me for a second, the earlier set of studies in that topic compared low amounts of protein, like functionally below like 10 grams mm -hmm. of protein, uh, with that small amount of protein plus carbs. And they saw that the combination of protein and carbs uh, elicited a stronger muscle protein synthetic response. However, studies subsequent to that, when they were comparing protein only versus protein plus carbs post-exercise, and they cranked the protein dose up to 20 to 25 grams, then the carbs co-ingested with the protein no longer added or enhanced or augmented, as they say mm -hmm. in the jargony world, it no longer augmented the muscle protein synthetic response, meaning that if your per meal protein dose, post-exercise or whenever it might be, if you're hitting the maximum that the body will um, generate an anabolic response, then you don't need to add carbohydrates to that, even if it's post-exercise for the goal of muscle gain. Mm -hmm. So um, with um, kind of backing up a couple of steps, if I may try to put all that together, with protein distribution through the day, as long as your protein doses are roughly 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per day, and you can get in, oh, a minimum of four doses of that, then you are doing everything you can uh, as we know it today, to maximize muscle protein synthesis, which over time will maximize muscle growth um, with carbohydrate and timing for the goal of muscle gain. Just hit your carb target by the end of the day in whichever way that is comfortable for you. And with some people, uh, it's going to be later in the day. Some people, it's going to be earlier in the day. Uh, some people have, they have training sessions that might dictate them to co consume a certain amount of carbs pre and during, especially if, if they're kind of like these hybrid types of exercise sessions mm. that combine strength and endurance and they get dragged out, um, over 90 minutes. Uh, and then there, there are some concerns there with inter-workout nutrition. And then you start getting real sports nutrition-y, which is a whole other rabbit hole. Yeah. But for the goal of muscle gain, I would say it's a matter of distributing protein, like I mentioned, and then with carbohydrate, the distribution there, the, the specifics and the nitpicky timing of carbohydrate, it's not nearly as important as we once thought. Definitely. Love it. And I love how you just so succinctly put that myth to bed as well. Because <laughs> I hear it, I hear it time and time and again, time mm -hmm. again. But I guess when we're thinking purely about from a muscle gain perspective, it's really nice to know that you don't have to force yourself to have a massive plate of pasta in that magical one hour window after the gym. If that's, you know, that's your, your only one session, it wasn't that high intensity, it wasn't an endurance session, you know, carbohydrates, as long as you get them in throughout the day at some stage, you're okay as long as you get your protein in. Yes. Love it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> now, Alan, my next question for you, I've heard you talk a little bit about damaged metabolisms, the starvation mode. I'd love for you to explain to our listeners, I guess with the backing of real science and research, 
why people can't, I guess, completely damage their metabolism. I'm sure that you hear it a lot. People say, oh, I can't lose weight. I've got a damaged metabolism. Oh, no, I can't. I can't because uh, I'm in starvation mode and that sort of thing. So can we put this myth to bed, I guess, with some real research and backing behind it um, and talk about some of the metabolic adaptions that happen with, um, you know, severe and chronic dieting? Okay. So the the concerns for um, hitting a, a point of starvation mode um, is rooted in anecdotes, so so just sort of testimonies from from dieters, uh, and then it seemed to pick up some research report from a television show called The Biggest Loser, <laughs> and so there was research on these individuals who lost just um, massive amounts of body weight mm. over very short periods of time, like I'm talking over a, a hundred pounds. Um, sometimes towards the 200 pound uh, and more um, in a very short period of time. And with that huge cash prize at the end of the rainbow, uh, what people don't take into account is perhaps some of the pharmacological help that they engaged in in order to gun for that prize. So it's not a very uh, accurately representative population Mm. to, to draw a fair comparison. So yes, these people did experience metabolic slowing beyond what could be attributed to losses in lean body mass. However, um, the, it, it still it came down to roughly uh, 15-ish percent drop in, in resting metabolic rate beyond what we would expect from the loss of, uh, of lean tissue. So that kind of gray area that that in quotes, the adaptive thermogenesis or adaptive thermal reduction, that margin uh, of these Biggest Loser contestants, mm, it it becomes a slippery slope to try to compare them with regular folks in in the population who didn't engage in such a a drastic competitive protocol doing whatever it takes, Mm. uh, taking Lord knows what, taking amphetamines or whatever. Whatever that, whatever they might have engaged in, to just sort of in quotes destroy themselves metabolically. So, I, I wanted to get that out of the way first because people will point to the Biggest Loser research and say, "Aha, see, look at that. They they wrecked their metabolisms." Mm. And then you always have to go back to the fact that, well, let's let's uh, be realistic about what they did in order to get that. And even that so-called wrecked metabolism level that they achieved was only uh, at most like 15 or in the high teens percentage wise in terms of resting metabolic rate drop beyond what we would predict. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So we've got that out of the way. Now, the next thing that, that I need to describe is a little bit laborious. So, so stick with me for a second. When people talk about metabolism, uh, we can look, we can refer to that as your 24 hour energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. So the amount of calories you burn in 24 hours in some from the, the calories you burn, uh, at rest to the calories that you burn through activity. Mm-hmm. So uh, under the umbrella of metabolism, you have non-resting energy expenditure, and then you've got resting energy expenditure. And so resting energy expenditure drops are mainly a function of losing your metabolically active tissue. And the most, uh, most active <laughs> metabolically active tissue would be your lean tissue. Uh, and so if you hang on to your lean body mass, 
then there will be minimal, if any, drop in your resting energy expenditure or your resting metabolic rate or your basal metabolic rate. They're all basically the same same term. Now, this is the thing that not a lot of people realize or know about. So this whole other part of your metabolism, your non-resting energy expenditure, this stuff is where you see these wide variations in, in individuals. This is where you see these drastic drops in 24-hour energy expenditure as a result of dieting. It, it happens within the realm of non-resting energy expenditure. And non-resting energy expenditure is an umbrella for your conscious physical activity or your, your exercise, your conscious exercise movement, mm-hmm. and your unconscious movement. Or you just your your movements of of daily activity, your fidgeting, your occupational movement, etc. So you've got you've got conscious and purposeful exercise, or your exercise uh, energy expenditure, mm-hmm. and then you've got your non-exercise energy expenditure, which encompasses everything from fidgeting to how much you use the stairs or not. Mm-hmm. It's those things that drop drastically as a result of dieting and people mistakenly attribute non-resting energy expenditure drops to their metabolism in quotes metabolism or what they are actually trying to convey as their resting metabolism Mm -hmm. so that drop comes from your non-resting metabolism and when you realize that then you can make meaningful program adjustments because then you can keep a closer eye on how many steps did you drop down per day you can keep a, a closer eye on, okay, well, how, how much am I just lying around and, and being lethargic more as a result of, of dieting? Um, there can be huge caloric differences between individuals the same size just by differences in their non-exercise activity. And it drops down very drastically. I, I give the example of uh, when we, we work with bodybuilders or you work with uh, physique competitors. Um, their non-exercise activity will go down to the degree where they're not even like nodding their heads anymore in the car to music. Uh, certainly, um, <laughs> their, their, their intimate relationship life kind of goes out the window as well. Uh, and, and these things add up. And so it's not really a matter of a broken or damaged metabolism. Mm. It comes down to a drastic decrease in non-resting energy expense. Love it. And for our listeners at home, we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast. Alan's really referring to what we've called on the podcast before your NEAT. So any exercise, I guess, that's not what you call formal exercise. Because I think when people, you know, they diet, they lose weight, they they try so hard to smash out that hour session in the gym. Then as you mentioned, Alan, they don't pay attention to everything else they're doing throughout the day. Like getting up and grabbing the controller from across the room to change the channel on the TV is so hard when you're in a massive deficit. And it's like, nah, I'll just keep watching the ads. Like I can't be bothered. Versus when you're eating a lot of food and you're nourishing your body properly, you're bound across the room, grab the controller, jump back on the couch. Like you really, you really don't pay attention to all of those little things that you're doing throughout the day. I talk a lot with my hands, but if you were to put me through like a bikini competition and put me in a massive deficit, I'd probably be sitting here like this the whole time. <laughs> right, right. You you would you would smash your training session and your cardio session, and then you yeah. literally lie around just out the rest of the time, and it makes a huge difference in, in caloric expenditure. Mm-hmm. And in the research by Levine in particular, he's tracked as high as 2,000 calorie difference in NEAT, 
between individuals the same size, just based on their their occupation movement. That's crazy. Uh, and yeah, and and, and if, if you can see a high of, let's say, 2,000 calories of difference in NEAT between individuals, it's not unrealistic for there to be 500 and 1,000 calories difference between individuals. And, 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 and even within the same individual, depending on how their dieting affects that aspect of their energy expenditure. Mm. So I guess to summarize for our listeners at home, what we're really saying is that you can't damage your metabolism for good. There's always a way that you can sort of reverse some of these metabolic adaptions. And as you were saying, Alan, one of the most important things to really look at when you feel like you hit a weight loss plateau, or so many people say to me, you know, I lost 10 kilos or, you know, Americans talking pounds, I lost 25 pounds, but now I can't lose anything. I'm doing exactly the same thing. I don't know what's happening. I've I've just stalled. I've hit a weight loss plateau. And that I guess is where they don't see this, this neat and this non-exercise activity, um, related things throughout the day coming into play and something as simple as getting your step count up throughout the day and and you know doing simple things like housework and talking with your hands as you mentioned can have such a huge effect on whether or not you continue to lose weight or whether that weight loss just kind of stalls and you plateau doesn't it yes it does and and there's a very important piece of research that I want to touch upon uh, that relates to this topic. And it's really important because uh, this was a 1992 study by Lichtman and colleagues, and it was on people who claimed to be, in quotes, diet resistant, mm-hmm. and who claimed to uh, have a habitual intake of 1,200 calories per day. Mm-hmm. And so they rounded up these subjects who fit this profile, and they they put them in the lab, and they tracked everything in and, and out uh, very closely, very objectively. And they found that these people were under-reporting their caloric intake mm-hmm. by something around 47%. So uh, they were under-reporting their caloric intake by over 1,000 calories per day. Wow. And not only that, they were uh, over-reporting. So they were under-reporting their caloric intake by 1,000 calories a day. And they were over-reporting their physical activity by over 50%. Mm-hmm. And so um, their their net uh, misreporting was in like the 1300s-ish that was unaccounted for and, and, and mistakenly uh, attributed to a slow metabolism. And the, the kicker with this, this group of subjects is all of their resting metabolic rates were within the normal range. So this is not to say that people are outright liars. It's just a, uh, it's just very compelling evidence mm. that um, we tend to misestimate our energy balance. We tend to um, underreport or underestimate the amount that we consume. And when you factor in the reality that uh, a lot of dieters go through binging episodes that go unreported, then that adds an extra layer of challenge in, in the whole idea of a metabolism being slowed down or diets being um, just ineffective. Mm. So there's a lot of factors that need to be considered here. Couldn't agree more. And that's funny that you bring up that research because I think deep down I always knew that, but I never really knew the study to link it back to because one of the first things I taught us in our dietetic degrees is that your clients will underreport by anywhere between 40 to 50% without even meaning to. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, but you need to know when you're doing your dietary assessments and recalls, underreporting happens. It's just human nature. And then they also told us that there is massive overreporting in terms of physical activity as well. So isn't that funny that like yes. you've got that 
that research. Like I think I knew it was out there somewhere, but maybe I just didn't yes. go thrilling through it for myself. But lovely to hear it from your side as well, that it's things that we do that's just human nature. We, it doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't make us lies. It's just something that we do. And there's human error in everything. Even people say to me, I, I put it into my fitness pal. I track it. I'm only eating 1200 calories. And I say to them, did you know that by law, nutrition labels can be out by 20%? Yeah. Have you considered the digestibility of food, processed food versus, you know, something like um, almonds, for example, where you don't actually digest all the calories in them. So it's all those little things that people just don't think about that they're outright, that they only consume 1200 calories and they can't understand why they can't lose weight. Yes. Yes. You know, a uh, lot to think about. <laughs> I, I have a, a, a close dear friend um, who just did a post on Instagram about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's getting slammed. <laughs> He's getting pounded uh, by folks who are saying, why are you, why are you telling people to go on 1200 calories? Uh, when the, the reality of the matter is he, he had a client who was reporting an intake of something like a thousand calories a day Yeah, and, and not being able to lose weight. So um, he asked her to go on a uh, prepackaged food diet where it was just very strict, 1,200 calories, and see what happens. Um, and she ended up losing um, substantial amounts of weight because the human error was removed. And the whole exercise for this was to put someone through that for a week and just just show them what, what the impact of human error is on caloric intake. And so anyways, he got slammed and, and for for putting someone on 1200 <laughs> calories instead people didn't realize that okay it's just for a week and you know i've done that as well with, mm. with clients i've done that with uh with folks who were claiming to eat a certain amount of calories that was drastically below what would uh normally maintain them and then mm -hmm. when you put them on a, a prepackaged foods diet like a meal replacement type of thing you say run that for a week let me know what happens and they lose a ton of weight uh it, it just ends up being a good educational exercise for for the the client to see just how off they are in their estimations of their mm. intake so yeah it's not it's, it's not always them lying to you it's people just genuinely uh making mistakes with that yeah, definitely. And when you think about how many foods you do enter into something like my fitness pal a day, I mean, you might weigh everything, but then just different brands and different products and different cooking methods. You know, did you weigh your chicken raw? Did you weigh it cooked? You know, there's a there's a difference between those methods as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's funny because there's a there's a, a bit of a funny thing within like sports dietitians. If if the clients will say, you know, I can't lose any weight, my metabolism's broken, blah blah, they'll give them what's called a you know, in, in inverted commas, a metabolic test diet where we'll give them something like 1800 calories, just of, you know, wholesome nutrition, just a ton of veggies, lots of lean proteins, that sort of thing. And boom, they drop weight within those two weeks. And we don't get them to add or track away or anything. It's really just using portions on a plate to understand how, you know, their metabolism is not broken. You can actually eat way more food and still lose weight. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, it's part of the human error. And when people are being so strict with their nutrition, they're blowing out in other areas, which they're like, oh, I only have that one chocolate binge on Friday. So that doesn't count. I won't report that. Yes. And we just kind of forget about it and sweep it under the rug. Yep. So I think it is a really important, um, that we're having this chat, I guess, around metabolism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I actually would love to get your thoughts around what to do within a weight loss plateau, because again, despite people doing all of the right things, they get to a point and they just absolutely cannot lose any more weight. Mm -hmm. So what does the research, I guess, in science tell us around um, what to do in a plateau? Are you a fan of, you know, reversing, I guess, reverse diets, quote unquote, um, to, to help some of those metabolic um, 
things that are happening within our body. When when somebody reaches a plateau, uh, first we have to be aware of the two main causes of a plateau. Mm-hmm. So one cause is that you have genuinely reached equilibrium in terms of energy in and energy out. You are at your maintenance level mm-hmm. uh, for the current time. So therefore, nothing's moving because you're at, at energy balance, you're at equilibrium. So that that's like a legit plateau. And then the other reason for plateaus would be compliance inconsistency. Mm-hmm. So with people thinking that they're doing everything and their their progress is halted but the reality of it is is kind of just what we talked about um they do well for let's say five days out of the week and the other two days they don't count their alcohol intake or they don't count that birthday or they they are just sort of sweeping things under the rug whether purposely or not so there's compliance inconsistency so you have to take a look first of all whether you are at a legit plateau mm-hmm. or whether you need to tighten up on uh, the realities of what's going on with your diet Mm compliance-wise. So if we imagine that somebody is at a legitimate point of equilibrium, then there comes the decision of one of two things. You either hold steady where you are and see if you can maintain the progress that you've already made, or Well, actually, there's three options. (laughs) There's maintain the progress. Let's see if you can do it because that's a legitimate goal. Mm. A lot of people don't realize that maintaining a significant amount of progress is just as difficult as pushing forward and trying to keep it going. Mm -hmm. So um, you can make the decision to see if you can. Okay, so you've been in a plateau for a month. Great. Let's see if you can actually hold that and not gain weight back for another month. so that's one option. The other option would be to look and see how we can further the caloric deficit in order to keep them going down in body weight and or body fat. Uh, and then the third option would be to take a diet break. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll talk about those um, individually. The option to maintain further uh, is an underrated protocol. Mm. Uh, everybody tends to look at plateaus as a bad thing Mm -hmm. when that's the wrong way to look at it. At the outset of a program, I always make sure that people know that plateaus are a good thing and it's your body doing its job. So if we think of our bodies as an adaptive survival unit, then our body's job is to survive the diet. (laughs) So if you run into a plateau, your body is absolutely doing its job. Um, and then I do a, a, a sort of a trick, a, a psychological trick. That's not really a trick cause it, cause it is true. Um, instead of calling it plateaus, I call them, uh, maintenance practice. And that's because, uh, at the end of the rainbow, the ultimate goal is a plateau of sorts. Mm-hmm. So when people have this negative perception of maintenance, uh, phases, en route to the ultimate goal, then it can be very sabotaging when they run into them. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, if you paint a picture for people to look at the dieting process as a series of steps down and then landings, and each time the steps down get less, and each time the landings get longer, 
then they kind of begin to see, okay, well, at the end of the rainbow is just a little, couple little steps and then this long plateau where I'm maintaining my goals. Then it changes their perception of plateaus being a bad thing. And what you can do with plateaus is reframe it for people mentally and tell them that, okay, this is an opportunity at maintenance practice en route to the ultimate maintenance. So um, that's kind of the, the first way that we can look at plateaus and, and instead of them being a sabotaging thing where people start sniffing out the next best program or the next best guru to work with, once they hit their first plateau, then they realize, okay, my body's just doing its job. Uh, we're at equilibrium. Uh, I can choose to do a very legitimate endeavor, which is to see whether I can maintain this progress I've made thus far. Because it's a legitimate goal. You don't always have to push further, harder, faster, lower, you know? Um, okay. So that's the most important thing that I wanted to get across with plateaus. Mm -hmm. The next thing that we want to get ac across is, okay, pushing through the plateau. You have uh, a few options. So one option would be to increase energy out or increase your um, energy expenditure through exercise or movement. Uh, the other option would be to decrease your caloric intake. And then the third option would be a combination of those two in order to reestablish the energy deficit and to continue to push through with weight, uh, weight loss and or fat loss. So obviously there is a limit to how, how little calories somebody can eat and still be healthy, still not feel like a pile of crap. Mm -hmm. So at, at a certain point, you're, you, everybody is at a different uh, place in their program. So according to the individual, there will be much more room to decrease calories in, or there will be much more uh, realistic feasibility to increase calories out. And for others still, there'll, there'll be a combination of that. So that has to be assessed on an individual basis. So it's not always a matter of decrease intake, decrease intake, decrease intake. Mm -hmm. You can find sneaky little ways to increase output, increase output, increase output by manipulating training frequency, intensity, duration type, uh, and just keeping people interested in that process of, of, of training, um, and, and in some cases progressively. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the other thing. And then the third thing would be to take a diet break. Uh, with diet breaks, the protocol that has worked well in my observations is when people are dieting past the initial phase, like it, and it is population specific too. Like if you work with individuals with a high degree of obesity, then they can diet through the first six months straight pretty, pretty linearly mm -hmm. without uh, necessarily needing a diet break. Um, but as people get further along in their weight loss journey, then diet fatigue can set in a lot more frequently along the way. So um, <clears throat> after this sort of initial phase of, of dieting, and as you get leaner, then diet breaks can become uh, a very important and effective tool for giving yourself a psychological break from the dieting process. Mm -hmm. There's nothing particularly magical about taking a diet break from a metabolic standpoint. 
there can be some advantages from a sports performance standpoint, from a training standpoint, to take diet breaks in terms of carving back up, refilling glycogen stores so you can push through and improve work output in the gym and or the track or the field. Yes, there is that. But for dieters, it is mainly a psychological break Mm -hmm. in order for them to have a greater chance of long-term compliance. So it's analogous to telling somebody, okay, see, see the, the, the horizon of the earth down there, like 20 miles down, see that (laughs) just sprint, go, just go. (laughs) Just keep going. Just keep going. You're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sprint and don't stop. That is your assignment versus telling somebody, okay, there's the horizon. And along the way, we've got 20 different benches where you could stop and take a break. Mm -hmm. Uh, go. And so what happens is the person you tell to just go and don't stop, they'll crap out a third of the way there. Uh, With diet breaks and with the knowledge that these diet breaks are part of the program, then you've got long-term adherence, you've got sustainability, and you've got sanity within the the dieter that you're working with. So it really is kind of a a sanity tactic. And and the uh, important thing that I want to emphasize is they have to know that diet breaks are a part of the plan. So this has been validated in research where if the dieter is uh, ha- is under the impression that these, in quotes, planned hedonic deviations are part of the program and they're designed to uh, enable sustainability and designed to give them psychological and in some cases physiological breaks from the diet, then they will have a much greater chance of succeeding long term. So the nuts and bolts of taking diet breaks, uh, in my observation, and there's no official right way to do this, but in my observations, um, diet fatigue psychologically sets in like every four to eight weeks of dieting. So within every four to eight week block, you can um, auto-regulate one week off from the diet. So the the diet break, the week-long diet break every four to eight weeks. And and you know what? If the person is sailing through eight weeks, they don't need to take a diet break. They just want to keep going. They're uh, making progress. Fine. Um, But just in my observations, people start getting a little bit ornery like Mm -hmm. on that eighth week. And, And so the diet break would be a return to non-restrictive levels of eating. So just kind of lifting off the reins on the conscious dieting process. And you have to explain to people that there's a difference between uh, (laughs) pulling your foot off the gas uh, or or rather off the brakes. Uh, There's a difference between between doing that and just saying, ah, screw it. I'm going to go full YOLO and eat everything I want and as much of it as I can. (laughs) Um, there's a huge difference mm-hmm. between diet breaking and just brave roll. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah. And and as long as you can teach that, and as long as the person knows it's part of the plan, and as long as they're okay with knowing that during that week they're going to gain one or two percent of, of their body weight back, uh, then it'll be successful. Great. And I guess long term in mind, that one to two percent shouldn't even register on people's radars. But I think where a lot of people go wrong is they have an end goal. They have a eight week challenge or a twelve week challenge or this is my goal and it's like I'm gonna do this for this amount of time only and not see it as a journey rather than see it as like an eight week challenge. And then the minute that challenge is over, it's like 
free-for-all back to their old habits, they regain all the weight again. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and if I can give you a concrete example, mm-hmm. uh, I've worked with physique competitors way back. I, I, I just, you know, I, I have a preference for working with the general population mm-hmm. uh, rather than um, physique competitors. I just, um, I tend to refer them out to my, my more militant bros. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, with, with like a 16-week prep period, there's going to be, uh, after eight weeks, there's going to be a break in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like a mandatory break. <laughs> so the person just can kind of reset and, and recharge mentally and, uh, and physically as well. And, and so um, in cases like that, I, I will almost force a diet break, like mm-hmm. one, at least one diet break in that, in that 16-week period. Uh, so I think people need to cozy up to the idea that uh, it's okay to take a diet break. And even in in the research world, uh, there was a there was a recent study where they overfed the subjects a thousand calories above and beyond maintenance levels for seven days, mm-hmm. and the thousand calories wasn't no protein and sweet potatoes. You know, it was <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it, it was whipping cream. Oh wow! <laughs> it was the it was yeah it was the worst possible uh, caloric surplus <laughs> that you could institute. For a seven-day period, and in that seven-day period, the weight gain was one pound of fat and one pound of lean mass in that seven-day period. So it was a kilogram yeah. uh, of body weight, roughly half of it lean, half of it fat. And this was from overeating a thousand calories of just crap <laughs> for that week. And so, if somebody um, is aware of this research. Um, and if practitioners are aware of it, then they know how to kind of navigate that and, and institute that. So people have quite a lot more flexibility than they realize with, with taking a diet break. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah. And I'm sure you could talk all day long about it, but Alan, yeah. I appreciate you coming on this podcast so much. And we're going to bring you back for a part two, which I am so excited about. You've taught us so much already. So all the lessons at home, you will have to get ready for part two with Alan Aragon. But Alan, can you let our listeners know um, where we can find you, where we can reach out to you, how we can come across your, um, I'm not sure what to call it, for lack of a better word, your research library. Um, yes. Well, that sort of thing, yep. Yes. Uh, you can just go to my website, alanaragon.com, mm-hmm. and I write a monthly research review, which I've been doing since 2008, uh, and in the hopes of uh, kind of raising the bar for the industry in terms of how we can help um, contribute to the greater good, uh, how we can help practitioners and coaches and enthusiasts and trainees um, have a more science-based approach to getting their results, whether it's improving their performance or their health. Uh, and you can find me at alanaragon.com. And, uh, and yeah, Leanne, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's always an honor to get, uh, invited on, uh, by somebody who's a registered dietitian (laughs) because, uh, you know, the, 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 the bar is set pretty high here. So, um, yeah, I'm just very thankful. Oh, Alan, the honor is all mine. Thank you so much. And lastly, your social medias. I know you're definitely on Instagram, but do you have Facebook? Um, are you on Twitter? Any of that thing if people listening at home are very social, if they want to give you a follow? Yeah, yeah. My Instagram, as well as my Twitter handle, they're the same thing. I, I'm much more active on uh, Instagram uh, than I am on, on Twitter. But the, the username is the Alan Aragon because somebody already took Alan Aragon. <laughs> 
So. I like the Alan Aragon better. <laughs> you like I it better. Yeah. <laughs> I like it better. It's like you're the man. <laughs> and and I, I am on Facebook as well.、Uh, occasionally, Facebook is kind of an interesting animal. It's almost like you go on there to、uh, just shoot the crap about off-topic stuff.、Uh, right now, everybody's just stressed out over what's going on, so you just kind of, <laughs> you know. But but yeah, Instagram,、uh, occasionally Twitter.、Um, that's where you can find me, and you can also find me、uh, at. Uh, you, you can find my content at my website, alanaragon.com. Amazing. And I will link all those in the show notes as well. Well, thank you, Alan. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And I absolutely cannot wait to have you back for part two of this awesome nutrition myth busting podcast. Would love to, Leanne. I really hope you guys enjoyed this podcast today. We will be back next week for part two with Alan. And don't forget, if you'd like to purchase my top rated three hour jam packed webinar, it's available on my website for only $29 AUD. That's the evidence based fat loss webinar. Click the link in the show notes to read more about the webinar.